rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hey gang, and welcome to episode 18 of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and before I get too far into this, I want to apologize to all six or seven of you that actually download this on a regular basis um, for the lack of an episode last week. I was going to try to pull it off as an April Fool's joke, but I figured that that was kind of pointless since it was after April Fool's Day. So... Uh, I apologize. Uh, things have been hectic around here. Uh, my wife had a surgery, and I want to thank everyone that posted about that uh, for the well wishes and the prayers. She came through it fine. Uh, she's still recovering, which is another reason why this episode's delayed. Um, she can't do as much for a little while, and uh, so I'm kind of having to pick up the slack. Not that, in case she's listening, not that it's a bad thing that she can't do as much, but... Basically, she can't lift anything over five pounds, so I've been, you know, busy with stuff. And, uh, of course, last week I had my father-in-law here staying in our guest room, which doubles as my recording area. So, uh, I apologize again, but uh, I'm here now, and uh, we've got episode 18 to do. Uh, first off, I do have an email I'd like to read real quick. And uh, this is from Tom O'Connor, and I mentioned his uh, website a couple day, uh, a couple episodes ago. Uh, he has Superman 101, which is a daily website. Uh, basically, he posts something Superman-related every day. Uh, and so far, he hasn't missed a day, to my knowledge. And uh, So I, I highly recommend you check that out. It's www.superman101.com. And um, here's what he had to say. Hey, Charlie. So, I'm out all this week on business, and that's usually the perfect time to get caught up on some of my podcast listening. And boy, am I behind on my listening. One of those that I'm a couple episodes behind on is your podcast. And lo and behold, what do I hear when I start them up but a plug for my blog, Superman 101. I just wanted to give you a heartfelt thanks, as that shout-out was above and beyond. I'm glad that you've been enjoying the blog almost as much as I enjoy crafting my daily posts. I've really been enjoying the Boost and Superman-centric blogs and podcasts that have been popping up recently, and am humbled to be a part of it all. I do think it's kind of funny that you didn't see my comment for a month, and then I didn't hear you plug for another month after that. I thought the Internet was supposed to be an instantaneous communication media, huh? So, anyways, thank you again, and for the mention, as it was very much appreciated. Signed, Tom O. Superman 101. And thank you for writing in, Tom. And he sent that to me on April 6th, which, as I'm reading this, was six days ago. So, another week. Fantastic. So, everything's right on schedule. But uh, thank you for writing in, Tom. Please make sure you check out his site. He's got a link to a couple other blogs that are also daily, which I thought was cool. Uh, one is called Superman Daily, uh, which does similar things, although I think they do more of a uh, uh, more of a theme. And then there's also the Fortress of Solitude Trophy Room or something like that, uh, which also has a link to a Batman Batcave Trophy Room. Uh, which is also a daily blog, Batman-related. So there's a lot of these daily blogs out there. I uh, They're pretty entertaining, so I recommend you check them out. Hey, 
everyone. My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, wait, from... wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world, and when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually. Because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Okay, and we are back, and we're going to start off this month with World's Finest number 209, with a pretty interesting and cool cover on the front, which totally uh, makes this issue seem a lot cooler than it ended up being. Uh, the story, <clears throat> excuse me, the story, entitled Meet the Tempter and Die, was written by Mike Frederick, or Friedrich, Friedrich, Frederick, either way. The art is by Dick Dillon and Joe Gaiella, with the editor, of course, being Julie Schwartz, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Schuster. And for the first time in a while, this story is not reprinted. And I say that because usually the world's finest ones are reprinted. So, we start this story high over Midwest, uh, Midway City as Hawkman lands to confront the killers of a Union boss. Hawkman quickly takes them out before being knocked out himself. As he comes to... The evil and invisible Tempter acts as Hawkman's inner voice and talks him into attacking more savagely. So Hawkman goes into attack mode until the police arrive, when Tempter talks him into telling them off and flying away. And Tempter mentions that his plan is going exactly as planned, to have Superman destroy himself. 
Speaking of which, in Metropolis, Superman captures the odds maker and his partner and brings them to the nearest police station. However, the sergeant behind the desk is too busy with paperwork to book them at the moment. Tempter talks Superman into thinking he should be shown more respect, so Superman yells at the sergeant to book them now and then leaves, slamming the door, causing the glass window to shatter. Later, inside the bottle city of Kandor, we see a scientist named Crow Al upset about Superman's failures to enlarge the city, but believing he knows how to save the city. So Tempter talks him into bypassing the council and Superman and getting help from somewhere else. On the Thangarian spaceship orbiting Earth, Hawkman is wondering what came over him while Tempter talks Hawkgirl into wanting to go back to Thanagar. Before she can say anything to Hawkman, they pick up a message from Kandor. Crowell pitches his enlarging idea to Hawkman and, thanks to Tempter's influence, Hawkman agrees to not only help, but to also keep Superman out of it. Meanwhile, back in Metropolis, Lois corners Superman about an article on Superman's failures, beginning with Kandor. This, of course, upsets Superman, and he flies off, which he should. But Tempter talks Lois into continuing to pursue the story no matter what. Meanwhile, in the Arctic, Superman enters his fortress to inform the Kandor Science Council that he won't be able to restore Kandor on Earth, because the only place on Earth that could support a super city is where Midwest City currently stands. Lowers, low, lowers, Lois overhears this through a bug she planted on Superman's belt when she had him cornered and heads to Midway City against Perry's orders. Why should be heading for Midway City at this point? I'm not completely sure. Maybe she knows about what Superman's going to be doing there later. Anyway, uh, the next day in Midway City, Hawkman is joined by Crow Owl and his two assistants in a secret lab. Unfortunately for her, Lois has found the lab and is discovered by one of Crow Owl's assistants. Meanwhile, in another part of the city, the mayor is dedicating a city park to the Justice League. And for some reason, Superman is there to represent the League and accept the reward instead of Hawkman. Which I don't understand, but it is a point of contention that Tempter plays with. Uh, at about this point, uh, the crowd starts heckling Superman about his failures to enlarge Kandor. Suddenly, a boy watching from a fire escape slips and falls over the ledge. Superman flies up to save him, and now the crowd is applauding and thanking Superman. Then Jimmy shows up to tell Superman that Lois has disappeared in Midway City. So, thanks to Tempter's influence, Superman boasts that he'll find her within the hour. Crowell spots Superman with his supervision and sends his assistants to attack with an energy sapper weapon within that. Crowell spots Superman with his supervision and sends his assistants to attack with with energy sapper weapons to stop him. Superman's able to evade the blasts uh, and uses his experience with his powers to put up to attack the assistants. Hawkman prepares to join the fight, while Tempter talks Hawkgirl into making up a reason for them to return to Thanagar. So she radios Hawkman that Chief Anderpol has ordered them to return to Thanagar. Now, left with the decision, um, now left with the decision to either return to Thanagar now or help Superman first. Tempter talks Hawkman into abandoning Superman. So Superman sees him leave, which is enough of a distraction for the sappers, or for the assistants to shoot at him, to shoot Superman with the sappers. Um, and of course, Superman just kind of floats there powerless. And of course, this is also captured by a newscopter, uh, which points out that he seems to be fall 
failing to save Lois. This, of course, ticks Superman off, which allows Tempter to convince him to destroy Midway City. At this point, Hawkgirl comes to her senses and realizes that she shouldn't have uh, lied to Hawkman. So she radios him and confesses, which lets Hawkman go back to stop Crowell. Busting into the lab, he uses the energy sappers on all three of the Kryptonians, bringing them down to normal human power levels and evening the odds so he can take them down. He rescues Lois, who asks Hawkman to uh, take her to Superman so she can apologize. High over the city, Superman is prepared to throw a boulder at the atomic power plant, which will basically vaporize the city, when he suddenly realizes that Lois is still in town, and basically hears her ask Hawkman to take her to him. This breaks Tempter's hold over Superman, so that, in defeat, he basically disappears. Hawkman shows up with Lois, as Hawkgirl also joins in, and both couples embrace each other, not all as one big group. After returning the Kandorians to the Bottle City, we see Superman and Lois flying over Midway City, remarking, remarking about how great humanity is. And that's the end of the story. And, um, wow, a lot happened in this, in this book. It's amazing sometimes how these world's finest seem to cram in so much stuff in, like, just a few pages. But, uh, I do have a few negatives, if you couldn't tell by some of the things I pointed out. First of all, who is Tempter? We've never heard of him before. How did he become like this? Who is he? Where did he come from? It would have been nice to get some kind of an origin. Maybe uh, Frederick was planning on using him again. I don't know if Tempter ever returns in a DC comic book. But uh, so that's kind of sad that we don't learn anything more about him. But I really would have liked know, to know more about this Tempter guy. Why he has a man on for Superman? Why he's doing this? It just seems kind of made up. <laughs> and I know it's a story that is made up, but it just seems kind of like a haphazard thing. We have an instance where someone is overhearing a conversation from a, from a previous scene, almost literally on both parts from the previous panel. But the words never, never quite match up. Uh, Lois overhears Superman talking about Midway City uh, being in the only spot on Earth where Kandor could uh, be, you know, could actually survive or whatever. And we hear him say one thing to them, but over through the through her bug, she hears something else. Now Tempter's there, so maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Maybe he can influence that. It's not made clear. Also, at the end. When basically we see uh, Lois request Hawk, that Hawkman take her to Superman so she can apologize. We see a scene where it's not really clear, but apparently I'm, I take it to mean that uh, Superman is actually using his super hearing to hear Lois say that, but her words are different. I'm thinking you got to be writing this script. Can't you just turn back a page or something and look at what you wrote and then write it again or something? I mean, I know it's not like today where it's probably it would be written on the computer and you can just copy and paste, but still, come on. And you would think editorial would have picked up on that. Maybe Schwartz was busy at this point. He's editing a lot of books. So who knows? Um, I, Jimmy Olsen appears at only one scene of this book, and apparently he was specifically sent to Midway City by Perry White, specifically to tell Superman that Lois is missing. Now I looked this up, and at least in pre-crisis times, and I'm, from what I can gather, apparently it's still 
pretty much the case. We do know Metropolis is supposed to be on the East Coast, anywhere from New York to Delaware, somewhere in there. And Midway City is apparently supposed to be roughly Chicago area. It could be a stand-in for Chicago, although they're supposed to be two separate cities, but it is in the Midwest, near Chicago, maybe in Iowa or something. So basically, that's a long way to go to use the paper's money to send Jimmy just to tell Superman that Lois is missing. I would think that for a young man that has a Superman signal watch, he could just signal him and let him know. That's all I'm saying. Also, you would think at some point he'd have a, he could have called Clark to tell him maybe, or, although we don't see any Clark, so maybe that wouldn't have worked, but still, it's just kind of out there for me. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's kind of mean that Superman would accept an award in Midway City on the JLA's behalf when Hawkman was not only available, but that's his home base. That would be like Green Arrow accepting, or the other way around actually, uh, that would be like Hawkman accepting an award in Metropolis on Superman's behalf. I mean, it's basically the same thing. I mean, no, I know it's supposed to be for the JLA, but Hawkman is a known visible member of the Justice League. Now, I could see it if maybe they had the whole Justice League show up. Hawkman probably would have been there, too, though. So I just don't see how why they would have Superman do that. It just seemed like bad writing, or maybe it was more of Tempter at work. Again, it's not made clear. Uh, that sergeant in Metropolis was a bit of a jerk. When Superman uh, drops off the oddsmaker, who I've never heard of before, and his partner, um, Literally, he just kind of, oh, I don't know. I think if you just put them here over the corner, I'll get to them after I finish with this paperwork and stuff. And it's like, what? Come on, man. Do your job. Book these guys and then get back to your paperwork. Now, granted, I don't know what police paperwork is like, but I do know. But based on what I've seen on TV, which, of course, is not perfect, um, I would imagine that booking someone that's just being brought in would take precedence over paperwork. And then you get back to it. It just seems like that to me. Um, <clears throat> I also thought it was weird that there was a lot of focus on Candor. You hardly ever hear it mentioned in these books, except Superman mentioning it. Or unless he's actually getting something from someone in the Bottle City. But here, you not only had... Um, uh, once Tempter had an idea to mess with Crowell, Suddenly we have, it's the focus of that, of Lois's newspaper article. Uh, lots of the people in the crowd are actually uh, giving Superman crap about it. Um, it's just a real big focus here. And I'm wondering, again, it's not shown and it's not mentioned, but I'm wondering if how much influence Tempter had on this whole story. If Tempter was that kind of, had that kind of power, he could have been going around telling people, you know, getting people to mention it. But again, it's not mentioned. I don't see. That's that's what I'm saying. Tempter is. We don't know what all he does in the story, and just it, it's like we're only getting half the story sometimes, and it just doesn't make sense. On the plus side, the art, even though some, even though maybe Tempter was doing stuff that isn't really depicted, and there is that one instance of is it, it either looks like a weird memory, or it looks like he's using super hearing 
but the art here looks pretty good and there's actually some glimpses of it looking great um, not a whole lot mostly it's just nice it's more than serviceable but it I wouldn't put it up there with like Neil Adams or Kurt Swan but I like the art in this issue and I kind of like the idea even though it wasn't carried off very well I like the idea that we had basically a villain that never truly interacted with the heroes and yet they in fact they didn't even know there was a villain but they still defeated it and actually it was the combination of all four of them Lois, Superman, Hawkman, and Hawkgirl that defeated him not just the Superman and Hawkman. That was cool. Uh, but but there is one more negative I have now that I've done my positives. Basically, this was Hawkman and Hawkgirl. So I don't understand why Hawkgirl didn't get a mention. Also, uh, this really is a crappy team-up. Superman and Hawkman don't act, literally do not team up for anything in this story. They barely see each other. So... Other than the art and liking the idea, this really is not that good of a story. This is no team-up. This is basically a story in which both characters happen to appear, but they don't actually come together. I mean, they're related to the story, but I wouldn't call that a team-up. They don't actually team up at any point in the story, really, at all. But that's all I have to say about that. Um, um, anyway, there was a backup story in this issue. Uh, it was a Golden Age Batman story um, titled Tweedledee and Tweedledum, or actually, I'm sorry, entitled Tweedledum and Tweedledee, but you can't guess who the bad guys are in the story. Um, this was reprinted from Detective Comics number 74 from April 1943, uh, which puts it firmly in the Golden Age during the war. It was written by Don Cameron with art by Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson. And um, it's a pretty good story, and I suggest you check that out. Um, that story should show up way down the line in that Legends of the Batman story uh, podcast that has been recently been started by Michael Bradley and Michael Kaiser, which I highly recommend checking out. I've, I've listened to their first two episodes so far, and I've been pretty impressed. So, um, but uh, so that's it for World's Finest. I'm going to play a couple promos, and we'll come back for the next issue. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin.
I'm Batman. Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning at BatmanLegends.com. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at greatcrypton.com. Presenting Superman. All right. Next up is Superman number 248 with a cover date of February 72. Uh, also released on December 12, 1971. This story is written by Lynn Wein, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The editor, again, is Julie Schwartz. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And the story we're going to feature it was reprinted in Best of DC number 32, which was released in January of 83, and Superman in the 70s, which was a trade paperback that was released in 2000. And basically in this story, in his secret laboratory, in his secret laboratory a solemn Lex Luthor begins recording the events that led to both his ultimate creation and to him becoming the man who murdered the Earth, which is the title of the story. Apparently it began not long ago when Luthor had finally collected enough galactic matter to build a man. Sort of. Then, in a souped-up version of the Frankenstein experiment, Luthor transfers galactic energy instead of lightning into the creature which causes his galactic golem to come to life. Luther then runs to his galactic energy cannon, activates a force field to prevent the golem from sensing the cannon's energy, then fires off a shot, implanting an, an abandoned building with galactic energy. The creature, drawn by this energy, goes to the building and tears it down until it has absorbed all of its energy. Luther then fires off another shot at a mountain outside of Metropolis, which the golem also destroys until all of its energy is absorbed. So basically this thing is uber powerful. The next morning, at the first annual Metropolis Golf Classic, Superman opens the festivities by using a specially created golf club to drive a large titanium golf ball to the Coperni Copernicus crater on the moon. Just as Superman hits the ball, Superman secretly hits him with the galactic energy. As Lois, who is covering the event for GBS in place of a vacation in Clark Kent, begins her interview with Superman, the galactic golem shows up, threatening the action ace thanks to a voice box implanted by Lex Luthor. Uh, Superman sends Lois away as he's hit by a blast of galactic force, which actually doesn't really phase him. But when Superman tries to retaliate with a punch to the gut, the, his blows barely face the golem either. The golem then grabs the Man of Steel, painfully sucking the life energy out of him. Superman gets out of his grip and tries flying away, 
but is hit by another blast, which, in his weakened state, actually causes him to crash down into another abandoned building, which apparently is a big, it happens a lot during these times, I guess, during the 70s. Um, he tries a long-distance attack, throwing a, a, an actual beam, as well as what looks like a trophy or something, at the golem, but it just blocks it and continues his march. Noticing that during those throws, the golem was actually protecting a strange mark on his forehead, Superman punches the creature there, causing the gigantic explosion that wipes out all life on Earth, leaving only the golem behind. Finishing his recording, Luther decides he will use a rocket to leave Earth, hoping to someday be able to justify his actions to himself and God. After taking one last look at Metropolis, Superman returns to his lab, only to be met by the golem. Realizing that the golem was drawn to the energy in his galactic cannon, which it can now sense since the force field is down, he heads back to the cannon tries to quickly activate the force field to keep himself safe. Unfortunately, even though he succeeds in putting up the force field, he ends up trapping the golem inside with him. Suddenly, Superman bursts in, but is stopped by the force field. Luther is unable to turn off the force field due to the golem's energy interfering with the controls. So Superman uses all of his remaining might to break through the force field and tackle the golem. While Superman holds the golem back, Luther sends a blast of energy at a meteor storm in space, causing the golem to fly off after its next meal. Superman then reveals to Luther that he realized that when he hit the golem, he might destroy everything else as well. So, Using the golem's energy radiation to increase his vibrations, Superman was able to shift the entire population of Earth to another dimensional plane. With everyone safe, he completed his punch, but the golem's en glimmering energy blurred his eyesight, causing him to miss and send himself into the same alternate dimensional plane. So, flying Luther back to prison, Superman is surprised to see the villain smiling. Apparently, Luther can't respond because he's too busy being happy to see all of the life below them. The end. Wow. So, I have a couple negatives on this. Um, I know the big one is um, somehow Superman was able to vibrate the entire population of the Earth to another plane with just one punch. Wow. That is pulling something out of your butt right there. There I don't I don't know how that could be physically possible, but then again, this is from a same, the same universe where an explosion in a desert in the southwest United States can also cause all of the kryptonite kryptonite on earth to turn into iron even on the other side of the planet. So Maybe I can give it a little bit of uh, credit there. But it would be more believable had Luther and the Golem gone there too. Because something like that, it's not like I want to send everyone except for Luther and the Golem to the other, to the other plane of existence. See, Luther should have gone there too because at that point, I don't know if Superman really realizes that it was Luther. That's all I can say. Um... Now, while he did save Earth's population, the planet itself was still destroyed. And while I didn't mention it, because I knew I'd be mentioning it here, uh, somehow, during that time that L Luther and Superman were contending with the Golem, everything seems to be rebuilt. 
Now, we had Luther go out, take a last look at Metropolis. It was still trashed. And then the Gollum attacks. Uh, Luther hides inside the... And ends up capturing him and the Gollum inside the force field. Superman comes in, saves the day. They shoot... The, they blast... Or Luther blasts uh, a meteor shower with the galactic energy, the monster leaves, Superman flies Luther out. In that time, everyone's going about their normal business, and everything's fine. No freaking way. Now, the, I, um, and I didn't mention that he had this because it's not a huge deal, but I wanted to know why Luther had a Superman statue. Now, I don't know if his secret lab was actually some other kind of place and he just happened to take it over secretly and it happened to have a superman statue but there's a superman statue in here full color larger than life superman statue why would his most bitter enemy have a statue of him hmm. um now the golem destroyed an entire mountain but no one seems to have noticed this you would think that this would at least have rated a mention, even in a thought balloon, to Superman and or Lois at that golf thing. Maybe it could have been a question that she asked him, like, what do you do? What do you think happened to the mountain last night? Because it was a mountain right outside Metropolis. Someone surely would have noticed. Luther even says that it would have caused enough uh, um, vibration to be felt in Coast City. And also, I guess it could be done with more shots from the Galactic Cannon, but we don't see how Luther was able to keep the Golem busy overnight until they could blast Superman. Basically, it's a bad timing. But then again, that way he would have had plenty of time to perfect the Golem. Had, you know, had it not worked out correctly. Had it not worked out correctly. Um... Also, Luther has this view screen that's able to view exactly the right spots on Earth and the Moon and in space without using cameras. Possible? No. Not without cameras. And not without knowing where to put the cameras. And it's just impossible. But now that I've bashed it, I do have a lot of good, good points about this story. For one thing, this is a great study of Lex Luthor. Uh, this man feels he's being oppressed by Superman and will go to just about any length to destroy him. But the idea that he killed everyone on Earth has really torn him up. And he's worried that just about justifying his actions to God. Now this has a whole new meaning because I have literally just reread All-Star Superman and rewatched the All-Star Superman uh, DC Comics uh, DVD which, by the way, I highly recommend. But, um, so, this is basically sort of the same Luther, and this really goes with Grant Morrison's view on Luther, but it's just, except for, you know, Lex Luther actually would have, except his version of Luther probably wouldn't be as upset about hurting all these people, but I think it's really interesting that they, that, uh, that Luther has this, form of humanity to him. This man has no has killed people before. 
He has no problem with killing Superman. All he wants is to destroy Superman. But apparently in his mind, Superman is oppressing him somehow. And which I think is cool. They're trying to give him a more reasonable reason for hating Superman than making his hair fall out. And which I really don't think is the main is the real reason. Uh, because you gotta remember the time that story took place. But that's a topic for another time. I'll get into Superman and Luther later. Um, but he's worried about justifying his actions to God. Anyone that gets in his way is cannon fodder. But when he destroys the entire planet, that's a whole different level. I can't imagine doing that. And apparently Luther couldn't either. And um, so I think that's really cool. Um, I liked the setup for the story. Uh, we're given uh, the first of all, we start off with the end of the battle. We see that the, 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 we see that the Earth has basically been destroyed. Cars are damaged. Buildings are caved in. Um, we see Lex. We see that Lex Luthor is very, all upset about it. We see that it all started with him creating this uh, creature of great power. And we see its power by destroying a building with no problem and not even getting hurt. And then uh, destroying a full mountain without any hesitation. And then we get to the next morning. We get to Superman just going about his normal routine. He's made a giant golf club. He's made a humongous looking golf ball out of titanium. And he's doing something for charity. That's also cool. It's just Superman has no idea what's coming. Um, and then... It happens, and you get this feeling, and it's just it's this beating in my chest that actually occurred. And I know I, I don't want to be crazy. I'm not crazy, and it was just really cool. It reminded me a lot of um, when they did the setup for Doomsday, uh, or the original Doomsday story of the death of Superman. The first issue uh, we had that issue of Man of Steel, where the whole issue we have. Doomsday doing his thing, and Superman doing his thing in Metropolis. Uh, we see Doomsday, you know, finally getting out of his prison. Uh, a bird lands on his hand and he crushes it. He kills a deer. He destroys a semi. He causes a huge fire. He's killing people. We see him walking through flames and it's not hurting him. That's awesome. Meanwhile, in Metropolis, Superman has no idea that this is happening. And he's fighting Underworlders and saving Keith and his cat. And that stuff. Uh, then the Justice League issue. We have the Justice League being called in. The Justice League is trying to take this thing out. Uh, we see uh, we see the Justice League basically being torn down. Guy Gardner's being hurt. Uh, Bloodwind basically gets slaughtered. Uh, Blue Beetle gets hit to a point where he's in a coma for a while. Um, we see all this stuff. Meanwhile, Superman's at a high school giving an interview because he has no idea. And it's this really cool setup, and then Superman suddenly gets, uh, and then when Superman finds out about it, he takes off. And when we finally get Doomsday versus Superman, Doomsday gets one punch to Superman's gut, and he takes it. Just like you would think he would. Meanwhile, you know, because of all the advertising and all the news, that this story is going to involve the death of Superman. You know that by the time that Superman and Doomsday meet, Superman 74, 
that Superman is going to die in one issue, especially if you read the, the uh, next issue blurb at the end of the issue. But you know what's going to happen, so you're given what the ending's going to be. And I had the same thing right here, that feeling of the first thing didn't hurt him, but the next blow actually hurt Superman. He got, I believe the next blow was uh, him getting kicked in the stomach and getting sent back, knocked back. But, wow, the trains are out tonight. Uh, but anyway, I, I just thought it just brought back that same kind of feeling, the setup, the fact that you're seeing this creature, you know it can cause some kind of damage, you know it's a match for Superman. And I also have the thing because I have also read um, another issue involving the Galactic Golem. I've read an interview with Len Wein about his creation of the Galactic Golem, which basically he just wanted to create the, the Golem so that Superman finally had a villain he could hit uh, that could, and that could take it, because Superman hadn't really had a villain up to this point that you know he could actually punch. It was always outsmarting or something. So I knew the point of the Golem, and the story started with the end of the with Earth destroyed. So I thought it was a great setup. It really got, pulled me into the story, and it just, it really grabbed me. The art on this issue was also fantastic. There's some interesting panel layouts in a few of the pages. The um, detail that is in the issue is great. Excuse me, is great. Not quite George Perez or, uh, I'm sorry, George Perez or Phil Jimenez levels of detail, but still quite a bit of detail. Um, the vision of watching Superman try to break through an invisible force field was pretty cool. You see him punch it a couple times. You see him slice it open with his hands and it looks really cool. And I just can't tell you how cool that looks. It just, I'll, I'm going to post this on the show notes so you can see it. And then you can see it for yourself because it just looks really cool the way Swan put that in there. Um... But it just shows that the Swanderson team is really starting to fire on all cylinders at this point. Everyone knows that baby Kal-El was sent from Krypton to Earth by his parents, Jor-El and Lara, shortly before the planet was torn apart by violent internal pressures. What else do we really know about Krypton and its history? Journey with us now as we explore The Fabulous World of Krypton Okay, our Krypton story is titled All in the Mind, written by Marv Wolfman, who you may have heard of before, who will later become pretty big for uh, his work on Teen Titans and a little story called uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. But by this point, I think, or pretty soon, he's going to uh, have a good run on Spider-Man and some other Marvel stuff. 
And then we have Dave Cockrum on the art, who is known uh, in DC for his work on the Legion of Superheroes. And over at Marvel, he is known for his work on the X-Men, specifically the, re, uh, the relaunch of the X-Men with Chris Claremont uh, in the 70s. So this should be a pretty interesting story. Um, this story uh, was reprinted in the Best of DC number 40, uh, which has a September 83 cover date, and was also reprinted in Superman The World of Krypton trade paperback from 2008. We began our story with the Mintor, M-I-N-T-O-R, exploration team, finding a sun disk, which actually looks more like an orb. Uh, basically, a lot, it reminds me of the orb from um, the Brainiac episodes of Superman the Animated Series, where you touch the orb and it's got memories and all sorts of information on them. That's basically what these are. And they find this sun disk that had been buried a long time ago. Activating it, we are treated to a history lesson that starts at the end of the war between the city-states of Urkol and Zan. The war ended. <clears throat> the war ended when Zan hit Urkol with an all-element bomb. It didn't affect the citizens of Urkol too much, but it did cause their child. But it did cause any child conceived the day the bomb went off to mutate. All of them were born with large heads, smaller brains, and no thumbs. For years, they were looked upon as being less than equal, uh, since it was starting to look like now one day, or at, some, at one point, once it started to look like the war with Zan would resume, these children were, see, uh, were seen as dumb, due to their small brains, and useless because they couldn't hold any weapons. So the Council of Elders actually decided to have them sent away. The kids were all herded into spaceships and sent into an area near the Golden Sea of EU, which is actually spelled E-I-U. I just figured EU is how it would be pronounced. Uh, the kids depart the ship, and we learn that they are able to communicate with each other via telepathy. They quickly realize they're going to need shelter and to figure out how they're going to defend themselves from the wild animals. Soon, they figure out how to set how to get fire from the firefalls, although this isn't shown. But these uh, the fire from the firefalls will never burn out and will not only make a good source of heat, but also allow them to cook. They also learn that they have the power of mind over matter, which not only allows them to protect themselves from the wild animals, but also allows them to gather materials and build homes. But one day, during what is basically uh, the Kryptonian version of winter, uh, one of the children accidentally activates uh, the computer monitors in one of the ships, and they learn that Zan is about to annihilate her coal with their doomsday weapon. The children debate over whether or not to help the parents who abandoned them before finally deciding that they need to try to help, because otherwise they would be no better than their parents. Unfortunately, they are too late, and they see the town of the city state of Urkel blow up, and basically, go, uh, you know, it's basically gone at this point. They all return back to their huts and their lives, and they continue to mature and grow up. And we learn that all of the couples end up having normal children that do not share any of their mutations. And over time, the community continues to grow, and they decide to name it Kryptonopolis, 
which is the future birthplace of Kal-El, aka Superman. Um, overall, I thought this was another interesting story. Um, I kind of like, I, I think it's, it's kind of a foreshadowing that Dave Cockrum uh, is working on a story where um, you have a certain kind of people who have been basically mutinated. So they're basically mutants and um, they're scorned and sent away. Uh, it just seems to play off pretty interesting since he's going to be on the X-Men soon. Uh, so, he, you know, it's kind of like a precursor to it. Um, although I do think it's interesting, I hadn't noticed this before, but this is yet another instance where we have a Krypton story. That is, the Krypton stories themselves are flashbacks, but then this one has another is another story, this is not the first time, where we have a flashback within a flashback. Um, this has happened before, but in this instance, we, uh, we're starting off in the sort of past present kind of thing where we see the ex, uh, exploration team finding the sun disk which sends us into a flashback to like the past past to learn about uh, Urkel and Zan. So uh, this has happened before and I'm sure it'll probably end up happening again but I thought that was interesting. Um, now I'm probably going to piss some people off and I'm sorry if I do but I'm not a huge fan of Dave Cochran. Even later on when he gets um, when he really gets into his artwork and gets better, I'm still not a huge fan of him. I respect the man. He does a lot of good work. He helped design, uh, redesign the X-Men and I mean he and a lot of Legionnaires. And so his his work is going to be around for a long time. I respect what he's done and everything. Just not a huge fan. And while there are some good panels here, I really wasn't impressed by the artwork on this story. Um, but I am interested in, uh, interested by the fact that how many, uh, or I am interested in how many of these stories somehow end up relating to Superman. I think maybe other than the Crimson Mists story, basically everything has had something to do with Superman because it's either dealing with Jorel and Lara, or somehow it involves. Uh, you know, well, the last panel always has something to do with Superman. We have Jor-El and Lara having, being the main characters, and of course the last panel always says they get married and they end up having a son named Kal-El who ends up becoming Superman. Or something like um, when, they, when we found out how Krypton was named, we have Krypt and Ton. And then it says, you know, and this of course is how the planet was named, and this is the planet that we give birth to Kal-El who becomes Superman. And now we have this story, which is basically the birth of Kryptonopolis. And I just found that to be pretty interesting. Maybe it's just me. Um, we have another backup story. This one's a reprint from the Silver Age. And despite Billy Hogan saying I could do this, I'm going to let him take this one when he gets to it. But this is the story. Uh, the title is Muto versus the Man of Tomorrow, featuring the Superman of 2966. Written by Edmund Hamilton, with art by Kurt Swan and George Klein, and was reprinted by, from Action Comics 399, um, which actually is a typo. It's reprinted from Action Comics 299 from July of 66. And after a few more um, promos, I will return with our last issue of the month. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. 
featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.lipson.com. Every legend has a beginning. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. 
of Steel, and more. SupermanHomePage.com Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. And welcome back, and we're on Action Comics number 409. Again, cover dated at length. Jeff Ferguson. Again, cover date of February 1972, with a release date of December 30th, 1971. And as I will end up saying for the first of many times, because he's going to be one of the pretty much the main cover artists for DC for a long time after this, the cover is by Nick Carty, which actually shows Superman stay, standing there with Clark basically clawing at him, scared out of his mind, which actually looks really cool. The title of this story is incredibly long, and, is and it's called, Who is Clark Kent's Killer, and Why is He Doing Those Terrible Things to Me? The writer is Carrie Bates, the artist by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, with the editor being Yuri Boltanoff, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. One morning in Metropolis, Clark Kent walks to the G WGBS building to get notes he needs for a story he's working on from home for some reason. After he gets to the elevator, it suddenly starts accelerating up, and as it heads up, it then crashes through the roof. Switching to Superman, he exits the elevator, grabs the cables, and actually flies the elevator back to WGBS, removing the jet thrusters as he repairs the elevator. That night, Superman heads to the American Southwest, where he's busy building a super village called Liberty City for the past three weeks, at night only, for going sleep so he can complete the job sooner. The next evening, Clark uh, returns home to work, unknowingly being watched by an invisible being. When he enters his apartment, every bit of furniture comes flying at him at great speed, burying him. Fortunately, he's Kryptonian, so he survives, but once he digs himself out, the invisible being reveals himself to be Shaylocks, an, an alien detective. This... Uh, Alien is trying to graduate from the Alpha Galactic School of Deduction, but has unfortunately failed two test cases. For his last and final chance, he's been assigned to help Superman find out who is trying to kill Clark Kent. A quick investigation of the apartment reveals that the assassin coated every object in the apartment with a special radiation that would be attracted to Clark's body heat. Superman heads out to resume construction of Liberty City and is followed by Shaylocks, but Shaylocks soon gets tired, so he gives Superman an invisible Sona whistle, which Superman can use to wake him up if the killer attacks. So Superman continues his work as Shaylocks sleeps, but meanwhile down below, a dark, mysterious figure lurks in the shadows. The next morning, as Clark heads out to work, followed by Shaylocks, of course, invisibly, a speeding car quickly heads towards him. Using his foot to destroy a nearby manhole cover, Clark slips down to the sewer and then uses a puff of super breath to send the car flying into the air. Then, switching to Superman in the sewer, he uses his x-ray vision and follows the car, popping up from a different manhole in time to catch it before it hits the ground. As Shaylocks, who unfortunately tends to panic in a crisis, rejoins the Man of Steel, we see that the car was completely automated and apparently equipped with a device to detect Clark's unique brainwaves. That night, Superman again returns to work on Liberty City. While Shaylock sleeps, we once again see the shadowy figure below, and through thought balloons, learn that he is desperate to rid himself of Clark. The next morning at WGBS, Clark is busy typing away on a story, 
when suddenly the foundation of the building gives way, sending the entire building sinking into the ground. Using his invisibility powers to shield Clark so he can change to Superman, our hero exits the building to find that the building is falling through a tunnel that leads directly to the center of the Earth. Fortunately, Superman is able to stop the building because he can also defeat the laws of physics, push it back up to the surface, and repair the foundation, all while making sure to grab the Sona whistle, which apparently must have gotten tangled on a girder and slipped off Superman's neck during the rescue. That night, we see Clark Kent walking along the streets of Liberty City. Suddenly, the mysterious dark figure from earlier springs from the shadows, picking up Clark and slamming him to the ground, which forces Clark's face to split in two to reveal that it was actually Shaylock's in disguise. Thinking that he's killed Shaylock's by mistake, the mysterious figure removes his mask to reveal that he is, in fact, Superman. Dun-dun-dun, because dun, I don't have the sound effect who then removes or who then realizes he is in danger to everyone on earth and exiles himself into space perhaps forever the end no just kidding actually after he removed his after he removes his mask Shaylock gets up and tells superman that he's less fragile than earthlings and it's just a bit bruised uh, superman wonders how he could have suffered from such a mental breakdown and Shaylock explains that even though his body doesn't need rest his mind still needs the subconscious release that only comes from dreaming and after three weeks without sleep his subconscious jealousy of his clark kent identity being able to live a normal life caused superman to create a third identity to kill clark Shaylock then explains that he guessed the truth when superman recovered the sonar whistle from the wgbs building earlier Shaylocks, who could actually see this invisible whistle while it was invisible, explains that he did not see Superman wearing it that morning, and in order to, for Superman to have found it under the building means that he himself must have left it there while he was do, uh, doing his tampering of the foundation the night before. So, with that, Shaylocks has passed his test and heads back for home as Superman decides to head back or to head out and take a nap. Doesn't say where he's going to take that, but I'll leave that up to you guys. So, on the downside, the idea that he has more time to work on Liberty City at night just doesn't work because half the world is still in daylight, and Superman makes world patrols, so technically Superman wouldn't have any more time at night than he would during the day. He'd just be checking out different parts of the world. Um, also, I don't know if we, if this was a good timing once again, because we have, um, Superman saying he's got the only time, he's got making all this time to make Liberty City, while just a couple weeks before in World's Finest, we have him, we have people mocking him because he hasn't spent any, enough time to save, or hadn't spent more time trying to save Kandor. On the other hand, this is a good thing. Liberty City is for the under for or underprivileged and less fortunate and stuff, so it's a good thing. But still, you know, kind of bad timing. Um, once again, uh, we have another story in Action Comics where a building is breaking away from its foundation without any without any indication of any kind of water or power lines or communication lines connected to it or affected in any way. And the other thing I noticed is that this plot is very similar 
to uh, the world's finest issue from a few months ago, um, in which, once again, we had one of Superman's identities trying to kill another one of his identities, and a detective being brought in to help and basically solving it. This time it was an alien detective, last time it was Batman, last time it was Clark trying to kill Superman, and this time, of course, it's a new identity trying to kill Clark. But the stories are so similar. Again, bad timing. Uh, the positives on this, though, uh, there's some great artwork here. Again, there's a lot of detail. I like Shaylock's. Um, first of all, I like the fact that his name is Shaylock's, somewhat reminiscent of Sherlock, as in Sherlock Holmes, which is really... Uh, gets hit home by the fact that he's basically wearing an alien version of the Sherlock Holmes outfit. The hat with the double brim, the uh, coat he wears over his shoulders, and his, ba his whole outfit it looks alienized, but it's basically looking like uh, Sherlock Holmes. I think the only thing he's missing is his pipe. But again, I mean, that's just the way it works out. Um, I thought that was a really cool effect. Um, but otherwise, it was... It was actually a pretty good story overall, just not the best. Now, um, this story, uh, or this issue, uh, oh, before I get into the letters page, um, I also want to point out that page two and three, um, one of the first times I've seen this, at least from Kurt Swan, but first time was, one of the first times I've seen this, uh, definitely since I started this show, pages two and three, it's a, two-page spread, sort of, but it's not done the same way that you normally see it done in a comic book, especially in a Superman book. Basically, you have to turn the issue sideways, and that is because the, uh, the largest panel is a really cool uh, version we see uh, showing the GBS building with the elevator crashing out of it and Superman flying out of the elevator. And it's all from basically a top-down angle, slightly angled, but it's basically top-down. So we're seeing the tops of the buildings at an angle so that we, I mean, the streets are way far down below. We can actually see beyond the city to the hills and valleys behind it. Um, it's just, it looks really cool. I'll probably also put this in the show notes. I'm not sure, but I think it's really cool. Anyway, uh, on the letters page, now, um, this issue that they're talking about on the letters pages, it was Action Comics 405, which is the story I covered with um, Michael Bradley uh, a few episodes ago. And this was the story, if you want, if you will recall, is the story, uh, it's the imaginary story that takes place slightly in the future, uh, in which uh, Superman has to keep the president safe. And if you'll recall, there was a robot in the story, a Superman robot. And I made a point about the fact that this doesn't make sense because just recently before that, Superman had pretty much deactivated and destroyed his Superman robots. Well, I wasn't the only one that noticed this. Bob Ruzakis, a.k.a. The Answer Man, um, also pointed this out. And his letter writes, Dear Editor, Sir, you have played a nasty trick on us. Okay, so we are willing to accept the fact that the body, that bodyguard or assassin is set some years in the future, making it an imaginary tale. 
but it is not a typical example of this type of story since it does not involve the Man of Steel being married, etc. It could also it could be happening today, but for the advanced technology. So what do you do? You toss in a Superman robot and ruin the entire story. I thought we got rid of all the robots. Next thing you know, you'll do another one of these future stories and you'll bring back Kryptonite too. How can you honestly dare us to guess the ending if we are working under the assumption that there are no more robots? Unfair, Mr. Boltonoff. Unfair, Mr. Bates. By Bob Rosakis, Elmont, New York. So, the uh, editorial response, which I believe these were probably done by E. Nelson Bridwell, but making it look like it's Boltonoff. Could have been Murray Boltonoff, I'm not completely sure. But the response is, the robot was the main reason the story had to be imaginary. However, if you still refuse to buy that, try the explanation offered by Michael Tierstein. Tierstein who just happens to be writing the next letter. Dear Editor, I imagine you'll get protest over Superman's use of a robot in the October issue. You had sworn off them. You had sworn off them. That's not good grammar. But the October, but the October robot was not a conscious thinking machine. It had no personality, no consciousness, and had to be controlled in detail by Superman. It was not a robot in the ordinary science fiction use of the word. In fact, one could very nearly create such a machine right now. Certainly, it should not be difficult in the near future. Michael N. Tierstein, Brooklyn, New York. An excellent rundown, Mike. This robot certainly was different from the thinking double Superman used to have. He even had to speak for it, so it couldn't have taken his place if he had been away on a mission. So there you go. Explanation right there. It was a different kind of robot, therefore it's still a valid robot. Um, I also like this next letter by Jerry Beck, uh, who writes, Dear Editor, why are your ads printed in the middle of the most of your stories? I'm not knocking ads. It's just that they don't belong on page 7 of the exciting Superman tale. And they respond, This is a problem for our production department. It would be difficult to explain it in full to someone not acquainted with the way in which our magazines are printed. However, there are four pages which are printed together for a large group of our magazines. The same ads thus appear on these pages, and when they are folded into the mag, they will be in a certain order. It's virtually impossible to keep some of these ads from showing up in the middle of stories. Yep. Now, I find it interesting that these days there's a lot of comic companies that actually save all their ads for the end. Um, some can do that, some can't. DC and Marvel's always splash them inside in the middle of the story. Didn't really bother me because my copy didn't have any ads. Thank you, CBR. Um, now, the middle story on here uh, is a Teen Titans story reprinted uh, from Teen Titans number four with a July-August cover date. And like last time, uh, it's a story that was basically a full story from that issue split into half to fit in here with the second half appearing next issue. Uh, the story is The Secret Olympic Heroes, which was written by Bob Haney with art by Alex Toth. And again, like I said, it's the first half of the story. The next, the second half will they'll finish up next issue. Uh, the backup Superman story is The Baffling Block of Metropolis, written again by Carrie Bates with art by George Tuska and Murphy Anderson. Uh, and again, edited by Murray Boltonoff and Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. 
One day, a giant, mysterious golden slab appeared in the middle of Metropolis Park and soon garnered the attention of the police, news media, and the general public. Suspecting it could be dangerous, the police check it out to make sure it isn't a bomb, which they find out that it isn't. Meanwhile, in the heart of Africa, Superman is drilling down to recover the largest diamond on Earth. In Metropolis, the police try bullets, fire, acid, and explosives, but are unable to even scratch the slab. Meanwhile, Superman has found the diamond and is using a combination of super compression and heat vision to condense the diamond into, an ultra, into a small, ultra-hard diamond. Back in Metropolis, the police try lifting the slab away, but the crane they use, which can lift 20 tons, snaps while attempting its task. Finally, at sunset, Superman arrives to thank the police captain for putting the slab through all those tests. We then learn that it was made of a super alloy created by Superman after gathering several alien elements together, uh, which I found out is basically uh, an appearance of Supermanium. The first time we see that, or really have, see it mentioned in this era of Superman. And he used this opportunity to test out its durability. Thanking the captain, he carries the slab northward, then uses that super hard diamond from earlier, plus some super strength, to drill out an arrow-shaped hole into the slab. And as the camera zooms out, Superman puts it, it puts the slab in place, and we learn that it is uh, and we learn that we have just witnessed the origin of the door to Superman's fortress. That's the end. The only negative I had of this story is I'm is while I'm a, I like the art, I'm not a fan of the way Superman looks in this story. I don't know how much of it is Tuska. I don't know how much of it is Anderson's inking. The art looks pretty good, but super, something's just off about Superman. It, mostly it's his hair. It just looks really matted down and helmeted and wet or something. I don't know what it is. It just changes the whole look of Superman somehow for me. Um, on the plus side, though, the rest of the art looks great, and it is a nice little story uh, for eight pages, and once again, we get another untold tale of the fortress, and I, I thought it was pretty cool. I always wondered how that door was done, and I didn't. I've read Bronze Age Superman books for a good portion of my life, and I don't think I've ever realized how indestructible and heavy that door is. So that's pretty cool. I thought, you know, anyone could probably lift it, but apparently not. So that's it for the books. A uh, few more promos, and we'll finish up with this month in the DC Universe. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at BatgirlToOracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you.
he was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two truefreaks.libson.com. Okay, this month in the DCU, uh, we have other books that were on sale in December 1971, obviously. Uh, first off on the list, we have Falling in Love, number 129, featuring uh, the story telling you how to get ready for a date. We have Forever People, number seven, uh, which has a really cool-looking Jack Kirby artwork on the cover. We have Our Army at War, number 241, featuring Sergeant Rock. We have All-Star Western, number 10, which features the very first appearance of Jonah Hex. And you can hear more about Jonah Hex, um, and I hope... He's listening to this to hear me plug this for him. But if not, oh well, I'm doing it anyway. Scott Gardner does, uh, and in fact, if I planned this right, I should have included the promo for it before I started this se- uh, segment of the show. Uh, Scott Gardner does do a Jonah Hex podcast. Uh, it's been kind of on hiatus because he's been pretty busy with, you know, working at Disney World and learning how to drive the monorails, which he finally got to do. Congratulations. And I'm also recording this on your birthday, so happy birthday, Scott. And uh, so this was really cool. Uh, we finally got to that. Um, next up is Flash number 212, uh, which has a really cool cover by Dick Giordano, basically featuring uh, Flash being sucked into the TV. And we have GI Combat number 152. And let's see, we have House of Secrets number 96. With a really cool look. I love these covers. Bernie Wrightson does this one. I love the I don't I don't know much about the art techniques they used back in these days. I know they could have used Photoshop to do it now, but so much of the stuff looks so cool. The moodiness, the way they get the shading. Now, I can't tell because I don't have a copy of this issue, but some of this looks, from this image I'm seeing online, looks really real, just the way it's shaded and stuff. It's really cool. Uh, We have Young Romance, number 179. And I would mention what the story is, but the cover on this is too small. I can't read it. We have Batman, number 239, uh, featuring a Christmas story. uh, You may have heard of because it's been reprinted a few times called Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, which is pretty cool. Uh, it does make sense since these came out in December. 
Uh, we have Brave and the Bold, number 100, uh, featuring four famous co-stars. And on the uh, we know, and based on, thanks to the cover, it's not really a surprise as to who it is. It's uh, Green Lantern, Black Canary, Green Arrow, and of course Robin, the Teen Wonder. And uh, I got I have to say right here, um, I haven't read a whole lot of Brave and the Bold, but I just picked up uh, for us what I figured was a steal. It's not a Michael Bailey type of steal, but it is a steal to me. Uh, the a copy of the Brave and the Bold Showcase Volume Two for ten dollars at a uh, at a secondhand store near where I live, and uh, I haven't read it yet, but it does include that issue and some of the first work by Jim Aparo on that on, on Batman books. So those, those it's really cool. I haven't read much of it yet because I've been busy with this, but I'm looking forward to it. Then we have Justice League number uh, Justice League of America number ninety six. Featuring the coming of Starbreaker, the cosmic vampire. Uh, we have The Sinister House of Secret Love, number three, which has an, another really cool cover that looks like a bunch of photo, shot, uh, photo work. Uh, we have The Witching Hour, number 19, which has a really eerie looking Nick Cardi cover. Uh, we have House of Mystery, number 199, which has a pretty eerie uh, Neil Adams cover. Featuring a snow beast. Uh, we have Star Spangled War Stories number 161, which again is really cool. Uh, we have Young Love number 92, uh, telling you to read the cards and find your love. And I find this cover to be pretty interesting. Some of these covers, uh, like the Batman one and uh, that one, that war one I just talked about, Star Spangled War Stories, and of course the Snow Beast one from House of Mystery. Everything is like cold because this and this issue came out in December but this issue of young love has everyone at the beach it's really in, and in skimpy bathing suits it's really weird uh, we have from beyond the unknown number 15 the book that won't die as I'm kind of getting tired of these because it's basically all reprints although this cover looks really cool uh, it's called the the cover story is entitled The World at My Doorstep, and literally we have this guy, it looks like he's getting ready to walk out of his house, and he's basically walking out the door, you can see his front stoop, and outside you see space and the earth. It looks really cool. Uh, we have New Gods number 7, uh, and I do realize I said it looks really cool in the book I'm getting tired of talking about, but, you know, what the heck. Uh, New Gods number 7, which has a really Kirby-esque cover. Uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 146, which again has a really cool Kirby-esque cover and actually features a Kirby Superman on the cover. I uh, can't tell because I don't believe anyone except Kirby and the inker Mike Royer had anything to do with any of the art on that cover, so that's really cool to finally see a Kirby Superman. Um... And of course, like I've said before, you can see or read a review of that at the Superman homepage in the Pre-Crisis Reviews by some dork named Charlie Niemeyer. Never heard of him. You probably wouldn't like him. Uh, we have Green Lantern number 88. This is a Green Lantern-centric issue. We have not only two stories featuring the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, 
the summons from space and the origin of Green Lantern's Oath, but we also have an Alan Scott Green Lantern story. And it's really, what I like about this cover is that we see Neil Adams' version of Alan Scott Green Lantern, of the Alan Scott Green Lantern. And Neil Adams is one of my favorite artists, and seeing his take on the Golden Age heroes infinitely makes them cooler, just by their looks. Even though I'm not a fan of the color scheme of the Golden Age Green, uh, Green Lantern's costume, it just looks really awesome. Then uh, we have a Nick, Ar Nick Carty cover for Heartthrobs, number 138, uh, with the stars. Let the stars guide your love life. I'm not sure if this is the stars in the sky or the, scar or the stars on the, in movies and TV, but what have you. We have Our Army at War, number 242 which is a 100-page super spectacular uh, featuring Sergeant Rock, which I'm thinking is going to be all reprints. Yep, it's all reprints. Uh, we have Unexpected, number 132, uh, which has another cool Neil, Car uh, Neil Carty. Wow, Nick Carty cover. Uh, we have Girls Love Stories, number 166, which even tells you how to look glamorous. We have Superboy, number 182. Uh, we also have uh, Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 119, which seems very reminiscent of Action Comics, number 393, from our very first episode, where we have Superman trying to save someone who's supposed to be parachuting. And although in this case, he, there, it's too late for him to get there in time, it looks like Lucy Lane's about to bite the big one. Um, but this has a cover by Rob by Bob Oskner, and it looks really. I think this is a really cool looking cover, and in fact, the Superman on the cover looks very reminiscent of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who wouldn't be coming in to be to do art for quite a while. Uh, next up is Action Comics number four fifteen, with uh, featuring Supergirl once again. And once again, she's in another look, another costume, and she's being dragged by her hair by some dude, which must hurt. And then we have Detective Comics number 420, which features a new logo for Detective. And uh, this one has another cool-looking Neil Adams cover. It looks like we're about to see Batman take off his mask. Weird. Uh, but it also has a Batgirl story and a Captain Compass story, who I have never heard of before. So that must be interesting. But that's it for this month. Um, even though I haven't had a chance to record a new uh, outro, I would like to point out, and I don't know, remember if I mentioned this before, but I would like to thank J. David Weeder. Uh, he recently uh, put forth the money to register... Uh, to register a new URL for the Superman Podcast Network, uh, which, of course, this show is a proud member of. Uh, so now it links to the exact same page, but now you can type the URL www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com, and it will take you to the same page that uh, you hopefully have been going to before, as featuring the all of the cool uh, Superman podcasts. So make sure you check that out. Again, that's www.superman.com.
podcastnetwork.com. And again, thank you to J. David Weeder for doing that. And um, thank you for listening to this episode. And we'll be talking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications.